Well, I grew up in a household with my dad, and he took care of us all of his life. I'm a retired social worker for Wake County Human Services, and now a lot of my clients that came to me didn't come to us with their dad. These guys are grown now, the women as well, and they suffer from substance abuse and anger and bitterness and resentment, all those things. So it was a God idea that I decided that I want to do something to give back. So we started Fathers Forever uh, to help to teach these guys how to be good fathers and how to come along beside them and give them the skills and the knowledge that they need to be a good dad. Like our Heavenly Father who, who take care of us, He feeds us, He clothes us. He makes sure that we are safe and doing things that we need to be doing. We want to model everything we do after our Heavenly Father. So that's why we provide food for the guys. That's why we provide clothes for them, as well as teaching them the importance of, of you know, their gifts, their talents, to be a part of their kids' lives, to be a part of their family lives, to go back and, and help them understand some things that maybe they burned some bridges and how to recover. They, they come to us from jail. They come to us from the prison. They don't have clothes. So our closing closet provide them opportunity to, to after we interview, they go into the next room and get a set of clothes. So when they come to us, uh, with the clothes closet really uh, help get back in the community. And when, when they go in the room and get clothes and take off their prison uniform, you should see the smile on their face when they can make outside. So our clothes closet has been very, very beneficial to guys who are returning home from prison. We created a car wash where we actually teach guys how to detail cars. And I can take those skills now and go to a car dealership and get a job working as a detailer. I'll start their own business washing cars. We also teach a class at the Hammond Road Detention Center every Tuesday. We take our 12-week class to the jail to teach them how to, be, you know, how to be dads at a distance. A lot of the guys come to us, uh, even from the community, that need food for their families. And our, our food pantry uh, just serve the community as well as serve the guys in our house. If Father Forever wasn't a part of our neighborhood, a lot of guys would be discharged to the streets. They wouldn't necessarily you know, have a place to go to for 90 days uh, to help them get back in their kids' lives, uh, help them get back, find a job. So I get up in the morning and come here every single day because that's part of my calling. That's what I do. That's what I love to do. And to see a man change his life from being, you know, a depressed, uh, having no future, having no destiny, to be, come along beside them and help them identify their gifts, their talents, their abilities, and also help them realize how important it is to be inside, their, be in their kids' lives. And, and so that's been very rewarding. Uh, I, I would do it, if I never got paid to do it, I would do this the rest of my life. I just want to say to the family of New Hope Church, Father Forever is all about healing fathers, saving families. And because of your help, because of your assistance, we're able to do that more effectively. Thank you so much. Very cool. Good morning, church. Uh, would you help me welcome Bishop T.G. Jakes to the stage? <laughs> the bishop is better known as Glenn Warren, uh, the director of Fathers Forever. Um, so please don't post that the bishop was at church today, all right? Uh, but at the start of uh, the baseball season for the Durham Bulls, we were approached uh, to do a sponsorship 
where we would nominate a charity for every double play that they got. And in the season, they got 56 double plays, and they asked us to give $50 to a charity of our choice. Well, we didn't give to a charity. We chose one of our missional partners, Fathers Forever. And so if you do the sums, $50 at, uh, at 56 double plays, you get $2,800. That's what the Durham Bulls asked us to give to a charity of our choice. However, that didn't feel like the generosity of New Hope Church. And so on the behalf of your generosity, I have a check for $10,000 for Fathers Forever. <laughs> God bless you, brother. Awesome. Awesome. I'd like to work out uh, a car wash schedule where it comes by the <laughs> church here. <laughs> hey, church, uh, next week we end our seven-week series called Help, this series that we've been on uh, about mental health. And I wanted to make sure next week we uh, finished this series and hit an absolute home run. So I text a pastor friend of mine, Harvey Carey, uh, pastors a church in Detroit, Michigan, and he said absolutely he'd love to be here. Uh, Harvey is just a full-on, on-fire preacher, right? You will not sleep. He'll get into the running man, you know, and the whole thing. And so I will be a kid in a candy store next week uh, when Harvey's preaching. I just love it, and I'm so glad I get to share uh, my friend with you, and he will finish this series uh, in a big way. So make sure you're here next week. Sound good? Yes? yes? Awesome. All right, today uh, I want to continue the series, and I want to start by looking at an article by a journalist that was in the New York Times uh, named Adam Grant. And Adam started to study the dynamic of what has happened to us after the pandemic. What has been this uh, dynamic that has come into like our emotional and mental state? And he did a study on it, and he talked about the fact that uh, most people have not necessarily come out of the pandemic where they would say they're leaning towards the depression side, um, but they're also not flourishing. And so he introduced this word, languishing. Languishing, and in the New York Times, he wrote this. It wasn't burnout, we still had energy. It wasn't depression, we didn't feel hopeless. We just felt some sort joyless and aimless. It turns out there's a name for that, languishing. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield, and it might be the dominant emotion. Grant goes on, in psychology, we think about mental health on a spectrum from depression to flourishing. Flourishing is the peak of well-being. You have a strong sense of meaning, mastery, and mattering to others. Depression is the value of ill-being. You feel despondent, drained, and worthless. Languishing is the neglected middle child of mental health. It's the void between depression and flourishing, the absence of well-being. Now, it turns out that Grant was onto something because the US mental health uh, published this graph 
that showed a whopping 55% of Americans uh, self-identified in the languishing area. Now, 5% self-identified as super functional. What kind of overconfident person do you have to be? It's like, yeah, I'm super functional. That's how I describe myself, right? But 5% of our population did. But uh, the thriving of 35% super functional is this flourishing 40%. And 60% indicated that they're languishing or severe suffering. So what about you today? Post the pandemic, is there an aspect of your life where you feel a little kind of out of touch with your emotions? It almost feels like you're emotionally flatlined or there's like this numbness around your energy and vision for the future. So if we put up a, a continuum on the screen, you might not say, hey, I'm, I'm you know, on the depressing kind of end, but I don't feel like I describe myself as flourishing in this current season. And so to introduce this new term, this languishing, uh, if we put that up, does this feel more like you this morning? Would you kind of identify with that description of the season that you find yourself in? This morning, I wanna go to the scriptures and I wanna unpack the story of a man who was 38 years with an illness and he found himself in a kind of languishing mindset. He was unsure of how he would ever break through his current condition. Now, I wanna be in the book of John and John lays out meticulously these seven miracles that Jesus performs, these seven encounters Jesus has with people. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they're describing these same events, these same miracles, they use a Greek word to describe the miracle, which is dunamis. And dunamis is where we get the word dynamite. The idea, when they wrote, was for us as readers to imagine when Jesus performed a miracle, that it was a display of His power in such a way it was like an explosion. So they used this word dunamis. John does not use that same word. In describing these same seven miracles, John chooses to use a different Greek word called simeon. And simeon is where we get our word sign. Okay, so uh, a miracle and a sign has a, a, a slight difference, a, a nuance, if you will. See, there's something that John wanted us as his readers to understand when we were approaching these miracles, and that is that the miracle was not all there was for us to know. That he was actually pointing a sign to something more. Something about God's kingdom for us to see in the midst of the miracle. We are not meant to stop at just the miracle, but we're to unpack it to a place where we can see the sign. Gary Burge, a New Testament scholar, writes this. A sign is revelatory disclosing something from God, something hidden before. The signs are not merely acts of power and might, they unveil that God is at work in Jesus and indeed is present in Him. So today, we're gonna unpack one of these miracles and look at the sign 
that God is pointing us to. So with that, if you're able to, would you please stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. We're in John chapter 5, verse 1, and the Word of the Lord reads, Afterwards, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days, one of the festivals. Inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So let's jump into verse three. John is describing a scene that we need to picture in our minds. There is uh, a great crowd maybe hundreds of physically disabled people all gathered around on five porches around a particular pool. What is going on here? Why are these people all gathered around with all kind of physical ailments laying around this pool? Well, the answer to that question is found in verse four. But if you have your Bible with you today, you'll notice that there is no verse four. It doesn't appear in the NIV, the NLT, the ESV. It's missing from those. See, that was because in early manuscripts, verse four does not appear. Now, later on in manuscripts, the King James Version records it and the New American Version records it. So it has verse four. But scholars say it wasn't in the original manuscripts, it wasn't in the text, but it was in the context. Meaning, in the first century, those readers would understand immediately why it was that hundreds of people were gathered around this particular pool. But it is lost on us without the footnote of verse four. So let's read what the footnote says. It was believed that from time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first person into the pool after each disturbance would be cured by whatever disease they had. This is why there was all of these people around this particular pool. Now an explanation of this phenomenon is likely this was a natural spring that was fed by underground streams and when there was high rainfall, uh, the air pressure underneath the water caused it to come up and break the surface with all kinds of air bubbles, etc. So there are these kind of natural springs still today. Uh, there's one in New Zealand, there's one in Mexico City, and one in southern France. And still today, people gather around those pools with all kinds of health ailments in the hope that they will receive a supernatural healing if they're there when the surface breaks and bubbles come to the top. 
Now, could you imagine there's this great crowd, John says, uh, around this pool, and they're just waiting for the surface of the water to change so that one of them, just one of them, could get to the water first and get their healing. We probably cannot picture this. Yes, we can. Black Friday sales at Best Buy. (laughs) Hundreds of people lining up for one TV. One person is gonna get the sale at Best Buy. This is the scene that is going on here at this pool. And here's this guy who's been disabled for 38 years. This is a really specific note that John is letting us know. 38 years, very specific. It had been a long time. And in verse six, it indicates that this man had become numb to his condition. He'd become numb to the emotion of his illness. It had become a way of life for him. He had accepted his reality. He had allowed this condition to be his identity. He had a languishing mindset. Verse six says that Jesus saw him there in his condition. And then Jesus asked the weirdest, seemingly most unnecessary question you could ask an ill man of 38 years. Would you like to get well? Anyone dealt with something for a long time? Maybe you've dealt with some sort of physical illness, something chronic, something that's caused you to suffer for an extended period of time. Maybe it's a relationship, there's some sort of relational issue and it's drawn out over and over and over time. You've dealt with chronic anxiety and worry and fear and it's just become part of your life because it's been present for so long. Well, even though Jesus knew of this extended suffering for this man, he still decides to ask him this question. Would you like to get well? Jesus is getting to something that is profound and deeply insightful about the human soul. Check out this man's answer in verse seven. I can't, sir, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. When asked, would you like to get well, this man doesn't even answer the question. Instead, he explains how his circumstances are hopeless. Instead, he explains why his life will never change. What is interesting here is his first inclination is to point out to Jesus he has no hope. No hope to ever get into the pool, getting to where his life can change. Now, I'm not wanting in any way to downplay this man's pain or belittle his suffering, but he has a crisis of hope. Or maybe what's more concerning, he has a conflict of hope. See, on one hand, he had enough hope to be there, enough hope to be at the place where it's believed that healings could take place. But on the other hand, he had lost all hope that the healing was possible for him. He had lost hope that he could receive a healing himself. Day after day, he lies watching this water, watching this pool, and standing in front of him, asking the question, would you like to get well? 
is the source of all healing, is the Jehovah Rapha, the healer. The one who can bring healing to him is standing in front of him day after day. He knows he can't get in the pool. Day after day, he strains and struggles mentally to think of ways and strategize to get into the pool where there could be healing in the water and the whole time standing in front of him in this moment is the living water. Asking the question, would you like to get well? And this man has a case of distracted hope. He's looking at Jesus, but he's looking at the pool because the pool may stir and he doesn't wanna miss his chance. Even though he knows he has no physical way to get there, he has distracted hope. Looking at Jesus, looking at the pool, looking at Jesus, looking at the pool. Have you ever had a case of distracted hope? Ever had a time when it has been so long that you feel like your prayers are falling on God's deaf ears? He's not moving on your behalf. You haven't received your breakthrough and suddenly you have a case of distracted hope. You come here on Sunday, but at the same time, you're open to explore other options. Maybe a relationship with a wealthy man will help you out of your financial situation. It's just like, I'm just open to exploring other options. I've got distracted hope. Listen to what theologian Charles Spurgeon said. A blindness had come over these people at the pool that were there, and there was Christ. Who could heal them? But not a single one of them sought Him. Their eyes were fixed on the water, expecting it to be troubled. They were so taken up with their own chosen way that the true way was neglected. When we have distracted hope, what tends to happen is we start to neglect the true way. The true way is faithfulness in God, placing our trust that at just the right time, He will come through. That standing in front of us is the Jehovah Rapha, the healer, the source of all healing. And He says to you and I today, would you like to get well? Do not get in a mode of distracted hope. For when you do, you'll neglect the true way. You will neglect the true way. So where have you placed your hope? Where have you placed your hope? Maybe you feel trapped in your circumstances. You've lost hope of receiving a breakthrough. It's been so long and you've prayed so hard for so long and no breakthrough has come and you're starting to languish in a defeating mindset. You've lived with some overwhelming challenge for such a long time. It's not something that you've just had to deal with. It's something that has become who you are. You think this is just my lot in life. You've had to learn to cope with this pain and it's become part of your identity. You see, church, when we carry pain for long enough, it becomes kind of part of us. It seeps into our self-perception. We view ourselves through the circumstances of our pain. And so when Jesus comes and He asks, would you like to get well? We tell Jesus of our pain. We tell Jesus of why it's hopeless. This is, 
so insightful to the human experience. Who takes their pain and embraces it as their own identity? Who does that? We do that. We all do that. It happens for so long that it becomes part of us. And, and hear this word, we embrace it as our identity. You see, we tend to define ourselves by either our victories or our losses, our wins or our wounds, our strength or our shadows. Here we have someone whose life has been defined by brokenness. So how many times do our coping mechanisms for pain turn into our preferred way of life? Let me read that again. So how many times do our coping mechanisms for pain turn into our preferred way of life? We've learned to find comfort in our discomfort. We've learned to live with pain and it's merged into our identity. The person who has hurt you caused you to form some bitterness within you and now you don't know yourself apart from that bitterness. Or maybe someone who has backstabbed you and betrayed you and this has become the source of a simmering anger that searches you into each and every day. Maybe you've lived with fear and anxiety for so long, it's become the lens in which you look out into your day. Your anxiety and your worry is a framework for how you do life. You've taken something that is broken and you've embraced it as your identity. Our coping mechanisms become our identity. And Jesus comes to this man who's lived with his disability for 38 years and he says, you've learned to live wounded. Would you like to live restored? You've learned to live in pain. Would you like to live healed? You've learned to live confined. Would you like to live free? And he asks him this question, the same question Jesus comes to you and I, would you like to get well? Verse eight, Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. That looks like basic narrative. But if we go under the surface of verse eight, there's actually some deep implications of what Jesus is doing when he says this. See, for this man to receive his healing, there was some kind of implied partnership. He had to do something. He didn't just get healed. I want you to catch this. Freedom begins with a willingness to change. See, Jesus told him to do something. In fact, he told him to do three things. And all of those three things he was unable to do on his own. Check it out. The first thing he says, he says, stand up to a lame man. Stand up. You see, in your pain, in your brokenness, in your languishing, God is going to ask you to do something in your own strength you are simply unable to do. But when Jesus says, stand up, in that very moment, when those words are spoken, the power is released into this man to do what he was unable to do on his own. And he stands up. 
Whatever God tells you to do, you must believe that in that moment, God will release the power into your life to do what you need to be done. Secondly, he says, pick up your mat, and the man does. That mat, that thing that had defined him for 38 years, this sleeping mat that he was confined to, his existence happened on this mat. It was the boundary marker of his life and now Jesus invites him to carry away the very thing that had carried him for 38 years. He releases the power of healing into this man and he says, carry away that thing that has carried you for so long. And then he says, and walk. And this guy walks away into a whole new life. See, freedom begins with a willingness to change. And that's the heart of the question that Jesus is asking us today. Freedom begins with a willingness to change. I tell you, freedom will cost something. You see, freedom will cost letting go of that broken identity. Where you have embraced the pain and brokenness in your life and it has become part of your identity in order to receive the healing from Jesus Christ, you have to be willing to lay that down. To let that go, it requires trust and obedience to accept the invitation of Jesus. So John writes about a sign, saying that the miracles point to the kingdom of God. There's so much in this particular passage that points to the kingdom of God, to the character and nature of God. I wanna highlight just two for us. The first is found in verse six. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time. Within this passage is the fact that Jesus knew. In the midst of everything going on, the craziness of the crowds for the festival, all of the crowd that was around the pool of Bethesda, Jesus stops, he sees one man, and he knows his condition without the man uttering a single word. So that particular truth that Jesus knows as a follower of Christ, as a believer should give us complete confidence and encouragement. See, that same Jesus knows all there is to know about your current situation today. All there is to know, all of the details. He is intimately aware of what's going on in your life, that that you are facing right now. Nothing that you are struggling with, no challenge, nothing that is happening to you in your life does Jesus not know about. This shows us, as John would write, a sign pointing us to a deeper understanding of who God is. That understanding is that He knows what's happening in your life. Every detail, every nuance, every challenge that you're facing, Jesus knows. You see, the enemy would come and and, and sow a seed of the lie that you are alone in your pain. It's not true. He would sow a seed that, that God doesn't care, that God doesn't know. That is a lie. 
The Word of God reminds us, gives us confidence, it encourages us today that there is not a single thing happening in your life that God does not know about. Jesus knows. You are not alone. You are not alone in your pain. Jesus knows. The second sign that I wanna highlight in this text, I actually wanna do around communion. And so if you would take a moment to get the elements that you received on the way in, if you didn't get them, if you just shoot up your hand and the, the ushers will get them to you. Once you have your elements, if you would go ahead and stand to your feet. Here's the sign in this text. Jesus comes to us. What we hold in our hand is a reminder that religion is an attempt for us to go to God. The Gospel is the truth that Jesus comes to us. That's what we hold in our hands. That the one who could pay the ultimate sacrifice and redeem all humankind God did not hold back His most treasured. But whilst you and I were still sinners, while we were far from God, God the Father released His only begotten Son, the spotless Lamb of God. And we hold this memory in our hand that Jesus comes to us. In verse two, John writes that the pool of Bethesda was by the sheep gate. The Sheep Gate was one of the gates into the city of Jerusalem. And it was aptly named because for the Passover lambs, when they were ready for sacrifice, they would all go through this one particular gate and it was called the Sheep Gate. Scholars believe that on the triumphant entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the precious Lamb of God, Jesus Christ Himself, entered into Jerusalem through the sheep gate to signify that He is ready to be sacrificed as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Isn't that cool? And we hold that memory in our hands. This symbolic meal that is about the celebration that our debt has been paid in full by the spotless Lamb of God. And so if you would peel off the top, the first thin layer. On the night before He was put to death, Jesus took bread, He broke it, declaring, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. Let us eat and remember. Go ahead and peel off the next layer, revealing the juice. That same time, Jesus took the cup, declaring, this is the blood of the new covenant, established through the shedding of my blood for the atonement of sin. When you drink this, remember me, let us drink and remember. Could it be 
that diagnosing the human experience in the seasons of languishing could be summed up in verse three of our text today. Crowds of sick people, you and me, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. People who are blind need vision, fresh vision. People who are lame and in pain need healing. People who are paralyzed have a sense of numbness in their life. Maybe in your languishing, you need fresh vision today. Maybe you need healing from pain or maybe you find yourself having gone through so much lately that you are disconnected from your emotional state and you feel a lack of energy and numbness right now. You don't know what you feel. The words of Jesus come to us. Would you like to get well? Would you like to get well? Jesus knows and Jesus comes to us. In our defeated state, in our brokenness, the Son of God comes to us. He knows your situation and He comes to you. I wanna pray for us and so I wanna invite if you would bow your head, close your eyes. Maybe one of those three categories you really connected with in this sense of languishing and you would say, I, I just kinda feel a lack of vision for my future. Or maybe you're walking through a really painful situation right now and you say, I, I, need, I need healing. Maybe you would say, I, I feel numb and I want the Holy Spirit to come and ignite a fresh passion within me to live for Him. If you fall into any of those categories while no one's looking around, I'm just gonna invite you to raise your hand just as a sign to God and I'm gonna pray for you. Maybe as I've been speaking, there's a loved one that comes to your mind and you'd say, I actually wanna stand in the gap for them and I wanna raise my hand to receive prayer for a loved one today. You have a loved one who you know just needs fresh vision in their life, some guidance, clarity, some direction. You have a loved one who's in a season of pain and you're gonna raise your hand for them today. You have a loved one who is kind of numb right now. So God in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name and you see all of these raised hands. Got some people crying out to you, wanting to answer that question, would you like to get well? And others raising a hand for a loved one. Father, we need healing in the name of Jesus, the one who restores, the one who brings new life. We need vision, the one who opens eyes and opens ears to hear. Would you turn up your voice, God, in their circumstances that they may see the hand of God aligning them. Would you bring clarity, I pray. God, for those in pain who desperately need a touch from you, Father, you know that pain is no small thing, be it physical, relational, emotional. But Father, we pray with the Jehovah Rapha, the healer, come and visit these people today. God, I pray for those that have their hand raised who have an illness today. Would you bring your healing in Jesus' name? 
And God, for those who feel in a season of numbness where they just don't feel a sense of anything, would the living water come and stir up fresh springs within them, God? Would you restore the weary souls today, Father? Would you do something that only you can do, God? Would you bring a breakthrough in a timely manner, we pray? Father, we raise our hands responding to You. We emphatically want to answer that question. Would you like to get well? We want to say yes, 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 Jesus. Father, we will lay down that that is holding us back in our brokenness to receive our freedom and our healing in the matchless and the mighty name of Jesus. And all of God's people agreed and said, amen, amen and amen. Yes. I wanna invite the prayer team and the section leaders, if you would just come uh, out the front now. For some of you today, uh, you've just sensed the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You're feeling a, a, a prompting and a nudging of alignment around this particular passage in your own life. I just wanna encourage you, let's come and grab a two minute prayer with a brother or sister and, and just seal this activity of God in your life. Don't let the enemy speak in this moment to say, hey, you've, you've gotta get off to, to lunch. The restaurants are filling up. <laughs> Imagine if the divine appointment in your life for breakthrough was in these next moments with these brothers and sisters just laying their hands on you. There ain't no lunch and restaurant line that's worth that. That's all I'm saying. There's something that happens when we gather together and we usher in the activity of God. We borrow faith from one another and the God who knows sends Jesus to come to us. Amen? Amen. Have a blessed week. Grace and